You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Daring, post-operatic, mythopoetic. Misha Penton is a contemporary opera singer, experimental vocal composer, and writer. Her work explores the intersection of new music performance, new opera theater, soundscape composition, bel canto, and extended vocal techniques. Professional affiliations include Houston Grand Opera, Rothko Chapel, Museum of Fine Arts Houston, Menil Collection, Dallas Museum of Art, the University of Houston Center for Creative Work, the Jewish Community Center of Houston, and Diverse Works Art Space Houston. Upcoming projects include Threshold, a site-specific experimental new work for the enormous and sonorous site gallery Silos at Sawyer Yards in Houston, with guitarist George Heathcote and percussionist Luke Hubley, as well as Anecdote of the Spirit, a new work created for and premiering at the Rothko Chapel in Houston for Menil Fest 2017. I want to start with talking about the piece, uh, The Captured Goddess. And this is a um, a piece written by Dominic DiOrio. Mm-hmm. Is that how you sp- say his name? Yeah, Dominic DiOrio. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So this work was written for you, and I'm. How did you? How did you meet Dominic? Um, I met Dominic um, through a fellow singer, Michael Walsh, um, who was working with Dominic when Dominic was at Lone Star Montgomery, just here out of outside of Houston. Okay. And um, we actually um, just really hit it off <laughs> immediately, and ended up collaborating on the chamber opera Clytemnestra, uh, which was a, a completely different project from the Captured Goddess project. Um, but after the Clytemnestra opera was over, Dominic wrote this piece for me. So that's how that all came about. And now um, Dominic is up at, in um, Indiana at Jacob School of Music. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, I read in his notes that this that this piece was written, I mean, specifically for uh, your voice. He called it a, a couture song. Yeah. And so what would I mean, what would those specifications have been and how did you how did you two kind of arrive at at what a piece written specifically for your voice would look like? Um. Well, he knew my voice really well after we had worked on the Clytemnestra opera. I had uh, actually approached him about that piece, and he set my libretto, and it's a monodrama uh, for Mm -hmm. soprano, piano, and viola. And we uh, staged it, premiered it. um, We performed it at the Museum of Fine Arts, at the Dallas Museum of Art. Um, I recorded a couple of tracks from it, a couple of scenes, I should say. And um, by that time, I just think he just really knew my voice. And um, he's a singer himself. He also, uh, one of his specialties is actually choral music. So um, he really gets writing for voice first off. So that was great. But he just really knew my voice um, by the time we had gotten through that Clytemnestra um, piece together. And he wrote this uh captured goddess work and it just it fits me perfectly and and uh you know it's just it's it's part of the relationship that I have with him it's it, it's a very um we have a close kind of creative relationship that just kind of works mm-hmm. that way 
Um, right. So I've been very lucky in that regard. And this, I think, well, in terms of what I could see on the on the notes for the piece, this piece was originally for piano and soprano, and the viola was added later. Was was it the the viola was added at kind of your request? It was um, Meredith Harris, who is a magnificent violaist here in Houston. Her and yeah, I actually I actually know Meredith. I thought um, I thought she, you um, might know her. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she uh, she played. Um, she kind of subbed in for the Axiom Quartet violist who was out, and Axiom did um, Axiom did a string quartet of mine at the Asia Society uh, just uh, like a year and a half ago. And Meredith Meredith was great. I loved. Her. Yeah, she is very very cool. And uh, her and I had worked on um, an Elliot Cole piece, uh, Selkie, which was a, another libretto I wrote. Uh, this is all previous to the Clytemnestra piece and previous to my working with Dominic. And um, we recorded uh, part of that opera, the Selkie opera that Elliot wrote. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's actually scored for cello, piano and voice. And Meredith came in and uh, Elliot redid one piece that Meredith uh, recorded with me and uh, Kyle Evans piano. Um, And so Meredith was also in uh, the Clytemnestra piece, played viola. Uh, And so after that was over, I said, hey, Dominic, wouldn't it be great if this Captured Goddess piece had viola? Um, And he was like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> when we went it's kind of it's kind of like getting the band back right, together exactly you know? or, exactly and uh we premiered actually now i recall we premiered the captured goddess with piano and voice at, actually at the rothko chapel that was the first time um and then i had wanted to record it and that's when i said um hey would you consider adding viola to this and uh mm-hmm. and he did so that's how sort of that came about so it was really it was really like the um the connection with the with the people involved and i I, it seems like looking through uh, a lot of your projects you know that is that's a big driver for you is that connection with those specific people that you want to work with yes that is really super super huge for me it's super huge um a lot of the things i do are staged um they have to come together quickly, intuitively, um, in, in terms of the staging part, certainly, um, I have to totally trust that everyone is going to be a hundred percent prepared. And, um, I've been really fortunate to forge a number of really good relationships with composers and, um, performers and musicians. And I like to, you know, nurture those relationships and and um to kind of keep working with people that get kind of where I'm coming from um and you know just are on the same page um and you know how hard it is to put together you know projects um yeah definitely (laughs) big or small they're all big I I always say that oh yeah I'm gonna do this thing with like two people and then all of a sudden it's a you know, a Cecil B. DeMille, you know, uh, grandiose <laughs> extravaganza somehow. But um, 
with six people. You know, it's still <laughs> tiny, but right, it does, right, right. It does get it does get really big easily. So, um, so yeah, I, I, it's not so much that I tend to work with the same people over and over, but, um, I do have a number of, of close collaborative relationships that, um, right. You developed kind of, kind of like a group, you know, that can, that like your, well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like a big artistic band and that's, that's kind of the way I have felt about some of the, some of my collaborators that I, that I keep, going back to in different like in different configurations you know Lydia Lydia Hans being one mm-hmm. of them um you know Lyd- Lydia and I have done pieces together we've done piece like we're gonna do pieces with other people involved and it's just like y- there there's a certain comfort level that you develop over time and you almost speak you you develop a language with that person that's very um I mean, it's it's time saving, but it's it's also kind of like you just get each other as artists, I guess. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And and it's, um, you know, I think it's relatively rare. I mean, I wouldn't I don't want to say it's rare, rare, but but when you do find somebody that kind of just gets you, it's it's a relief and it's um, and it's exciting and uh, it relieves a lot of for me anyway, it relieves a lot of the sort of pressure around the project. Right. Um, so, um, so that's been, you know, that's been something that's, that's happened over time, takes time, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's happened over time. The text for this is uh, a poem by Amy Lowell. And how did, how was the text chosen? Did you, did you have any input on this or was this Dominic's choice? So Dominic, um, said, hey, I really want to set an Amy Lowell poem. Do you want to read some of her stuff and tell me what you think? Um, Mm, And she's very prolific. (laughs) So I was was like, sure. And then uh, I read a lot of her work and I found this piece and I said, I think this is the piece. And he read it and loved it. And that was that was it. (laughs) <laughs> it's it, so what what specifically uh about this text kind of like called to you um i really love amy amy lowell's an imagist poet so she she is uses all these beautiful images in most of her work and and i was really drawn to what seemed to me to be um a very prescient kind of uh narrative it was written i think in 1913 um and it's about this goddess character who's who's kind of the personification of nature and and humanity really who ends up lashed and tied up in the marketplace um being bartered mm-hmm. over um and the narrator um who sees this can't bring herself to do anything and and right. she walks away um and it's it's so tragic and it's, it's so of our time. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I, when I read through it, I didn't, uh, necessarily attach the goddess character with, with nature, but even just the goddess character, just being a woman, Yes, you know, like that's, that's very of our time right now. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to read that and, and certainly, 
um, you know, those images for me were really troubling and, and, um, disconcerting and frightening and, um, and very real in, in our world, in my world. So, um, and, and I think Dominic felt the same way about it. Um, and, uh, that's kind of how that, how that developed. Yeah. It's the, the text, like it kind of starts off with these very, well, I mean, she's talking a lot about color and they're very colorful images. She's, and she's using actual, the, like the words to describe colors of, of different stones and flowers. And it, it really has this kind of kaleidoscopic um, image that the, it gives you. And then quickly it just turns on a dime. And, and I'm wondering like, how, how do you feel uh, Dominic cre- like created that turn in the music? Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, I call it a mini opera because it, it feels like that to me because of that dramatic arc through it. Um, and that, and that there is this moment where it goes from sort of this beautiful lyrical, um, descriptive place to this very dramatic kind of dark place. And, and what was uh, fun about it too, uh, from, you know, my point of view as a singer is, is having those kinds of contrasts in something that's a song. I mean, it's, it's about 10 minutes long, so it's eight minutes long or something. And uh, so, I mean, it's relatively long. So it, it, it gives the singer a lot of, um, opportunity to use that drama and and I think that Dominic really grabs a hold of that in the text um and and Mm -hmm. really illustrates it really well now you actually you made a film for for this piece and I mean like it's kind of it's it's actually like a you know new uh contemporary music video right yeah yes yeah, and I was just speaking a few weeks ago with uh, some other collective members, um, Andrew Martin Smith and Jamie Lee Sampson, about the about this idea of creating uh, medium specific versions of the piece. And I thought that I, you know, I wa- I watched the video, and if uh, people are interested to go see it, they can go um, search for the Captured Goddess on Vimeo. And the I thought that this video really added to my listening experience since I. I had to be experiencing the piece online as opposed to uh, as opposed to seeing it live. So what was your kind of what was your motivation for doing this uh, like music video or film project surrounding this piece? Um, I had done um, two other music videos, um, one uh, for the Selkie project and uh, one for the collaboration I did with George Heathcote. Ravens and Radishes, which is a fairy tale cycle. Um, so I kind of have been for a very long time obsessed with music video <laughs> and making music videos. So um, so I just continued that with this piece. I was really compelled by it. And I did want it to be, um, I, I wanted it to be media specific, how you express that, but one of the things about live performance, particularly when you're creating completely original work, as you know, it's very fleeting. Um, right. And you do it uh, once and then it's gone. And mm-hmm. I had always been pretty good about documenting and became um, 
more obsessed with documenting performance and then did recording projects and then decided, you know, I really want to do these films. And um, again, it sort of happened that um, I have a filmmaker neighbor and uh, my husband uh, works with cameras and now I do too. Um, So uh, it it was just, it's just a natural extension of, I think, the way that I think about um, dramatic music work. Um, right. And so it it seems really natural that it's translated into some type of music video or music film. And, you know, we watch those online now. So that's where it is. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing the thing with like, you know, you you always see people, you know, documenting live performance. And a lot of those times it just kind of falls flat. Like I would I would rather listening. I would rather listen to a just purely a recording than watch a video of a live performance Mm -hmm. but when you when you take this you know music video idea and actually like inter intercut you know different visuals that comment on the text or comment on the narrative but also give you know some some uh kind of performance video of the of the people you know performing like it just makes it i mean well, it's you know, it's like it's like a music video. Like that's that's mm-hmm. why MTV and VH1 like got so popular because the like it is for it's made directly for the video medium and now because everything we do is online, it is the thing that translates the piece I think the best in an online format. So I th- I thought it was really great. Thank so. you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really fun um it's really fun and it's a a little addictive. I actually just, um, this next project I'm doing in Houston at this old rice factory, we just did a big shoot actually, uh, just Saturday. So, um, there'll be another, um, music video coming out of that. Um, so I, I'm kind of continuing in, in that vein. Um, probably even more attracted to that than, than live performance, I think. So yeah, I'm, I, I don't know. I just, I think that it's, it's, it's really fun. I, I'm a, a bit of a film buff, so it's definitely a kind of a natural fit for me. So, uh, we're going to hear just the, obviously just the audio because it's a podcast, (laughs) but, um, again, if you want to check out this video, just search for the captured goddess on Vimeo, the the players we're going to hear on this recording are, of course, Misha Penton on soprano, Meredith Harris on viola, and Kyle Evans on piano. Thank you. 
something that you just said that I found really interesting, and I think tra- I think it transitions us into uh, the the other pieces we're going to talk about. Is you said that you're you're getting really interested in in documentation, and also in in interested in in creating things for a recorded medium as opposed to live performance. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about uh, this piece, um, Even My Body Not Let's the Light Through. Mm-hmm. So uh, my first question is, is how is this work meant to be received? Like what's the optimal setting for setting and delivery method for this work? Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I created it as a, um, I created actually as an audio piece and then it, it was for a, an online supplemental edition of performance research journal, uh, which is mm-hmm. actually hard copy, uh, published through Rutledge and they have now an online supplement to it. And they had a call, um, for an edition that was themed on sea at sea and um okay so i have a bit of a obsession with virginia wolf and with her novel the waves and mm-hmm. this piece originally was uh going to be an audio work and then they asked for photos or something to go with it and i was like oh no no you can't just do photos (laughs) come on so um so i i made a film to go with it and um and then it became part of that online um themed uh edition of the journal so that was what that was for but since that time i've made some other experimental um pieces i just made this one um that i filled up filmed out in colorado in the winter and it was ridiculously beautiful that day and um i added a voice uh piece to it and i just i just kind of put it up online um and i've submitted it to some um actually some experimental poetry kind of outlets online but uh-huh. Um, it, it's a, it, it's a, those kind of works are kind of in between genres or in between, um, you know, they don't really belong to, um, like video poetry. They don't particularly belong to right. new music. It doesn't, um, it's not a music video per se. So, um, so I'm not really sure. Uh, it's certainly something that, can be experienced as its own work if you happen upon it, which is kind of right. Kind of interesting. I guess the the, um, the question is like, are we meant to listen to this on headphones or on speakers? Are we meant to hear it like in a in a hall through speakers? Is there a live element to it at all, or like that's you know yeah. you know because it it, it so. Go- yeah, yeah. Um, so headphones are really great. I do have a piece in the works that I'm going to um, incorporate live uh, voice into the audio voice scape. So mm-hmm. that's something I'm, I'm going to be doing in the future. Um, the way that I did do this particular piece was actually meant to be heard on headphones and that it... It could be something that was screened 
in a in in some type of um you know kind of film setting that would right. be appropriate but so that's kind of kind of where i was coming from with that um it's one of the uh-huh. first pieces like that that i've done um so i'm kind of at this place where i'm i'm transitioning into a lot of stuff that i've never done before um right well that's exciting <laughs> yeah so a lot of the questions are like uh i don't really know uh you know so um so it is exciting um and it and it's very like I'm a cicada like busting out of this really tight um skin mm-hmm. that I created for myself that I've outgrown so what experience did you have with like editing or mixing or manipulating recorded sound before before taking on this project so I've been recording for quite some time years ago I was in a rock band and all that kind of crazy stuff and, and did some recording then, but um, when I I produced the uh, recording of Selkie, um, Elliot Cole's opera, and also um, the Clytemnestra opera, I produced that, and the recording of that, and the Captured Goddess, I produced it. So by that, I mean um, I took home everything that everyone played, and I went through everything. <laughs> And right, uh, yeah. decided how that was going to all go together. Um, and then over the years, I just um, I've done some some voice scapes and sound pieces for dance um, in Houston. It's been a while since I've done that. But um, so it, it was just kind of over time. I've just learned how to do, you know, the stuff that artists have to learn how to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it seems it seems like at every turn we have to learn like, oh, I thought I thought I had all these skill like composer skills down. But no, now I got to learn how to code a really awesome website or something. Right. Like that, you know, like it's, a, it's always yeah. it's always one more. thing. Yeah, I just uh, really got a really I'm kind of like all full of myself about this because I just got a really good handle on Final Cut Pro. So I'm like, OK, yeah. now I'm like cooking with gas, you know. Uh, so, but it's like, you know, it is, it's like, you got to know how to record and edit and you have to be able to get your website together and you have to be good at social media and you have to be able to document your work and edit that. And you're telling a story, right. As an artist. Right. So, and our storytelling tools are all digital. So. Did you have any influences or inspirations from other composers or other vocalists who who have done pieces that specifically treat the voice in this manner? Um, you know, uh, a lot of the the more experimental voice work that I do, or what I'm calling experimental voice, kind of comes out of theater training and out of mm, okay. out of mid century uh, theater voice work and extended voice work. Um, Roy Hart um, was an experimental voice uh, guy from the mid-century. He's dead now, but um, Peter Maxwell Davies wrote eight songs for a Mad King for him. And so he was kind of one of the pioneers of, of, kind of using your voice outside of, you know, what we think of as singing. Um, and I studied with uh, one of his students, Richard Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm kind of coming to a lot of the way I think about um, 
the work that I do as this marriage of voice and text and speech and singing and using all the tools that I have as a vocalist um, and try not to limit that. But then I also have particular aesthetic preferences, which are really informed by classical um, technique. So it's it's kind of this strange world that I'm I'm working in. The poetry that we hear comes uh, you you mentioned earlier, but it comes from Virginia Woolf. But it it isn't a setting of a poem. So how did you work with the text, both in both in h- how you recorded the text, and then how did you work with the text in the editing phase of this piece? So I wrote the poetry, and the the title, even my body now lets the light through, is from a little snatch, a little snippet of uh, text from Virginia Woolf's book, The Waves. Um, oh, so that that's the only part that comes for, from Virginia Woolf? I, yes, in that piece. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, what I did, actually, and what I do when I do these particular kinds of voice pieces is I, I just work with the text um, improvisationally, and I record a bunch of tracks. And then um, I kind of work with a lot of chants and I um, and I put them together. It's really mm-hmm. um, kind of how it how it happens. Um, I think for this piece, I had some other, um, you know, I, I kind of build up over time a catalog of of things I've recorded um, that I can choose from. So right. um, I think there's some things in this piece that are um that are from a little bit in time a little bit before I recorded the main um text of it so it's a very intuitive I mean it sounds kind of woo-woo and spooky but it I'm I'm kind (laughs) of I'm I'm just really wanted to work with what happens with my voice when I put particular kinds of text into it that's kind of where I was sort of coming from. The The title itself comes from a snippet of Virginia Woolf, and then that inspires a poem that you write, or, or not necessarily a poem, but text that you write. And then when you're going in and improvising, are you moving through that text linearly? Lin- linearly? Linearly? Is that a word? Linearly? Li- um, in a linear manner. <laughs> and then when you... <laughs> and then when you edit... Are we are we also receiving the text in a linear fashion? I mean, you, I know you said you you brought in maybe some some other either sounds or text from a previous project, but so so I'm guessing. Or I, I guess I'm asking: Is this a setting of a poem, or are you using text in a in a nonlinear fashion? Where once once you get onto the computer and into the studio, you can kind of rearrange and find different connections between bits of text. Yes. So it is nonlinear. Um, Got it. And um, yeah, it's nonlinear and it is um, fairly chance driven in terms of the way that I edited it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I put things together and then I listen to it and I go, oh, wouldn't that be cool if this was here or that was there? So, but having that non-linearness is very much a part kind of, of, of my entire creative process and the way that I think about 
narrative or lack thereof, um, because I most of the things that I do don't have a, a traditional kind of narrative. Was improvisation a big part of your like musical upbringing or your musical training? You know, it was not really. Um, but again, from theater training and theater work with voice, it definitely was um, kind of these ideas of devised practices, um, group devised practices, um, and and voice practices that are really improvisational, but it were also designed technically to free the voice. Um, sure, you're right. From whatever constraints you'd put on it. I mean, I think that's really what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for freedom. Mm. And one of the things that gives me that is getting away from a staff and notes. Yeah. Um, so there's that so, part of it. Yeah, that... <laughs> That's that's always a very freeing moment when you don't have those uh, those five lines staring you in the face, and it's like, oh, gotta fill these with something, and it has to, oh, I, I, it, it's like when you when you start a new score, you know, oh, I've I have to make eighteen decisions before I even put a note on the page. Yeah, and it's like, oh, what if I get rid of the page? <laughs> oh, that's that's kind of a nice idea. All right. 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 So we're going to listen to this piece. And again, the title is Even My Body Now Lets the Light Through, composed by Misha Penton. Brushed from brow, 
my breath in such a tender passing from its form from this body. What you were just saying at the end, um, when we were when we were talking about the previous piece, again, like we're we're just you're just giving me these wonderful transitions. So thank you. <laughs> um, but the way of working, where you mentioned, like you know, you want to get away from the page and the staff and the notes. So I thought uh, this piece, this is our universe. The way in which this piece was made is very interesting to me. So can you tell us about that process? Sure. Um, So I had done a couple of live performances of this work uh, with my collaborators, uh, Shinyung Tsai, uh, who's a pianist, and Thomas Helton, who's a bass player. Um, And then, of course, I wanted to do a music video of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh I sense a theme I, right and so or a media project as i as i say and uh so i was like okay guys we're gonna go into the studio and we're just gonna like we're gonna play it and we're gonna film it it's gonna be super easy and i could not get everybody into the studio at the same time like schedule wise mm. it just was could i couldn't make it happen like within a six month time period it was ridiculous And probably I should have just said, you know, forget it. Okay, we're not going to do this, right? (laughs) But instead, I was like, okay, this is a genius idea. This is what I'm going to do. We're going to go in and we're going to record completely separately 
Like we went in and I, I actually kind of worked verbally with Shen Young a little bit. And uh, she recorded um, these big chunks of amazing, beautiful piano work. Um, and, and then she went away out of the studio. And then uh, Thomas came in another day and we did the same thing. And we filmed them when they recorded. Right. Um, and so then Thomas did his sessions. And then I went in and filmed and recorded. Um, and this is a Virginia Woolf text, most of of it actually right um and then i took all of those tracks home and i created um a piece from them um and of course i i discussed all this with thomas and shin young and i was like hey you guys cool with this and they're like okay that's cool so i was like <laughs> okay great so um so that's uh so and th- so i put the whole piece together in, in, in an edit from uh, choosing from everything that we had done. And, uh, and then I went actually back to the studio for the final edit uh, with Todd Halslander, uh, you know, in, with his software. Um, right. And uh, that's how the piece came together. Um, and it was really cool. It was a huge risk um, and a big learning experience. Um, but I kind of like it. Um, yeah, I mean, the the thing that's really attractive to me about it is it's that you're working with material and it's so immediate, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you, you don't have to sit there in front of the piano and ponder, like, oh, should it be this note or this note? No, it's in front of you. And now you're just, uh, it's like you, you can work with big chunks of material as opposed to, like, tiny little cells mm-hmm. of material or something like that. However, I thought it, you know, it does mean that these ideas in terms of the from player to player, maybe maybe not so much for you because you were you were able to kind of guide each of the piano and the double bass performances in a certain way and that maybe in informed your own improvisation, but again, in a certain way it's like these ideas kind of live in vacuums. And they can't, they, it's not as easy to transfer from one person to another like it would be in that live performance, you know, where you can hear each other. So I was wondering, you know, you you said you kind of worked verbally with the pianist. Um, Did you do any, any re-recording, you know, to, to kind of tie, tie different musical ideas together or, or really it just, it, all the material comes from those um, improvisations. Yeah, all the material came from um, from those improvisations. What happened was, I think both the pianist and the double bass player did like five or six chunks that were six to ten minutes each. Uh-huh. Um, the final piece is about ten minutes. Um, and then I went and recorded, I don't know how much, Um but yes, so they they do they did exist completely separately. However, we had played the piece a number of times together live. So that live performance is also completely freely improvised. It has a kind of structure that um, 
it has a kind of structure. So it, it is, okay. in a sense, it is, but but there's ways that certainly that I shape um, the voice uh, part and the text kind of in, in, I think it was like in three kind of um, chunks of text uh-huh. um, with interludes. I mean, a very, very simple structure, but there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. Um and the live performances were about, I think the longest one was a half an hour. And I think mm-hmm. after uh, after doing it a, a few times, and we got together and played, we rehearsed, quote unquote, um, an, a many times actually, and, and played the piece together um, before we did performances. So... Mm-hmm. There was definitely a rapport and a and a information exchange and a creative exchange going on as we got to know each other better. Got um, it. Yeah. And I definitely wanted it to be dramatic and I wanted it to have an arc. Um. So and it it, it ended up being in live performance ended up being about twenty minutes. I think is is kind of how it settled down. Um. So it wasn't like we went into the studio with absolutely no relationships and no right okay idea yeah. of what was going to happen it we had a history together with this piece and as players so that greatly facilitated um the way that it came together so we're gonna we're gonna hear the um and again if you want to see the video and you absolutely should go see the video because it it um you know it just it it it's another type of it's another experience. So listen to the beast now, but then go watch the video and have another different experience, which is great. Um, if you want to see the video, uh, just search for This Is Our Universe on Vimeo, and you should be able to find it really easily. Uh, this is Misha Penton, soprano, Shinyun Sai, piano, and Thomas Helton on double bass. Snow crawl under 
of the current leaves and tell stories. Let us inhabit the underworld. Let us take possession of our secret territory, which is lit by pendant currents like candelabra. Shining red on one side, black on the other. If we curl up close, we can sit under the canopy of the current leaves and tell to prevent me.
had shaken her head and made all the Jews. The topaz, the aquamarine, the watercolored jewels with sparks of fire in them. We'll get to the last question, the question that I always ask everyone uh, who is on the podcast. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I... that, that's usually the response it gets to. Oh, geez. What? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I grew up, um, I grew up singing. My brother's a guitar player. He's a jazz and blues guitar player in New Orleans. Um, 
I, I grew up actually on like classic Hollywood movie musicals um, and musical theater was a, a really big part of my life as a, as a kid. Um, I don't know. I think I just, I, I get obsessed or possessed by uh, creative ideas that, that feel like they are best expressed, um, you know, through, through my voice somehow. Um, and I, I think that's, it's compelling, I guess. I'm compelled, perhaps, is the answer to your question. Was there, was there a, a moment when it kind of sunk in that, oh, this is what I'm going to do? Um, no, I don't think so, because I'm always wondering, like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Even still? <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if there was a moment. I, I, I'm not one, I'm not one of those artists that has a, has like, remember something that happened when I was like nine that like changed my perspective on everything. I think it was, it it feels kind of cumulative. And I, and I do think from a really young age, I was always singing and dancing and, you know, dressing up in costumes and running around the house. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't have any early memories that are not like that. So, um, so it feels a little bit built in. Um, but at the same time, I think that that's part of the, um, you know, kind of the joke about what am I going to be when I grow up? Because it, it, it kind of feels there's, there's still a, an imbalance or feels, um, it feels unstable or something. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. the, the, the ephemerality, the ephemeralness of, of the art form is, um, contributes to that too. Right. And I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's why you have this like kind of fluidity moving through, you know, getting into, you know, starting off by, uh, performing and then composing and then doing video and new and other types of media and it just seems like you you are able to freely explore those different areas without much um, restraint or, or restriction I guess well th- thank you that's that's thank you um yeah I I do think that I um I tend to be unintimidated by trying new things um Mm -hmm. and to try them and seriously try them and and immediately say to everyone this is what i'm doing (laughs) right yeah so it's like i I don't like hide away you know and 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 get ready you know i just kind of go okay this is what i'm doing now um and it, it it kind of also is you know we live in that in in that kind of world in a in a you know, in a digital world, essentially, where, you know, there's a lot of flow of ideas and, and people are doing all these amazing creative things. And, and, you know, I think that's inspiring and, um, and exciting. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think all of the, I mean, not all, but a lot of the successful artists that I see are, I mean, they can, it, it, there, there is a lot to go that goes into why they are successful. But for me, I see one common trait that keeps coming up, and it's just they live 
their artistic life with kind of the mantra is I am a person who makes things. Mm. And if you just keep making things instead of waiting for things Mm -hmm. to be, you know, made for you to do or, or something like that, then I think that like, that's, that's kind of the, the attitude that I try to have for myself. And that's, those are the people that, you know, you want to be working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so. I totally hear that. I really hear that. Yeah, you get no one's going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially right now. <laughs> you know, so so yeah, go go do your thing, you know. Definitely. Cool. Well, where can people find you online and what are you, what kind of projects do you have coming up? So, uh you can find me at my website mishapenton.com. Um, and on Facebook, easy to find. Um, I have a project coming up at the end of this month at, uh, it's an old rice factory. It's called the silos at Sawyer Yards in Houston. And it's this amazing sonorous space. And, uh, I'm creating a work, uh, in there, uh, for voice and I'll be joined, uh, by guitarist, George Heathcote and percussionist Luke Hubley and uh, three other people who will be uh, actually a Greek chorus. Uh, so it's um, a really big project and it's I'm really excited about it. And uh, it's site specific to this uh, enormous uh, honeycomb labyrinthine silo space. And that, So when, when is that happening? That's is a- it the end of April? Yep, it's April 30th. Well, at the at this point, um, this this won't come out until um, oh, I have to look. It it won't come out until May. Okay. So, well, then yeah, maybe it'll we, be done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It was done, but there will be a cool, super cool music video. <laughs> yeah. All right. So and that will be you... after after May. That won't be out. Okay. Right. Have cool. no fear. Are you on Twitter? I am. I'm Divergence Diva on Twitter. Divergence Diva. Bam. There it is. <laughs> Go follow. All right. Thank you so much for doing this, Misha. Thank you. Super fun. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.